sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians is God's Call to Church Action. Today, Faithfulness or Fickleness. Our text, 2 Corinthians 1, 12-22. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Turn with me, if you will, to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, and particularly verses 12 through 22. We are pursuing a study entitled, God's Call to Church Action. We've introduced the epistle, and now we're beginning verse by verse to expound it. Our popular theme this morning is, Fickleness or faithfulness? More specifically, Paul is dealing here with what we are terming not the fellowship of consolation, that was last week, but the fellowship of vindication. God vindicating his faithfulness as against what he was accused of, fickleness. And so I want us to consider these verses together. And find here a message that's going to spur us on in action for our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians then, chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. As you see, Paul is still bearing his spirit to his readers, showing what is down deep within his personality. He has already declared his burden concerning this matter of consolation. He senses that there's a lack of compassion, of real travail, of involvement, of understanding in the church at Corinth. And he wants them to understand that this kind of experience doesn't come to the spectator who sits back in the pew and analyzes critically what might be termed an evangelistic service or what might be termed a convention or what might be termed a missionary conference. Travel only comes to people who know how to share with Jesus Christ in a real level and dimension of suffering. This is Paul's great ambition, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, compassion. But now he moves on to another subject. And he speaks of the subject of vindication, the fellowship of vindication. The apostles' integrity and authority had been called into question. And he deems it right and proper that the truth should be known in the church. And that the innuendos which had emerged again and again should be cleansed right out of the fellowship of the church. So we have two considerations of solemn importance in the paragraph now before us. And very simply, it's divided into man's accusation and secondly, God's vindication. Now to the first, the accusation of man. I want you to look at verses 12, 15, and 17. I'm just picking up phrases in these four verses. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. Verse 12. For we write none other things unto you than that ye read or acknowledge. That is verse 13. I was minded to come to you before, he says, in verse 15. 
Did I use fickleness or lightness? Verse 17. It is clear from an examination of these verses that there was a group within the Corinthian church that had their doubts about the Apostle Paul. They questioned three things. They questioned, first of all, the transparency of his life. For our rejoicing is this, verse 12, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God we have had our manner of life, our mode of life, our behavior, our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you, Ward. Now, we can't read these words without catching the undertones of the accusations which the Corinthians were leveling against Paul and something of the slanders with which they were trying to besmirch his name. Paul's use of certain significant terms here implies that he was being charged with impurity, duplicity, carnality. And as we shall see in a moment, Paul answers these charges with a clear conscience before God. But I feel it well to pause right here and examine the language that Paul employs and try and catch the undertones behind the language that he employs. For instance, over against the charge of the impurity, he speaks of his own simplicity. Would you notice that in verse 12? His simplicity, or more accurately, his holiness. Over against the charge of duplicity, he speaks of godly sincerity, or more literally, the sincerity of God. Over against the charge of carnality or fleshly wisdom, he speaks of his dependence upon the grace of God. And he defends the transparency of his life with a clear conscience before God and before men. Now, my dear friends, this attack on Paul's character, this attack on the transparency of his life, is nothing new. It was true of this minority group in the church of Corinth, but it's been true of minority groups down through the history of the church of Jesus Christ. There isn't a servant of God who has ever lived who hasn't had the transparency of his life questioned you say, why? Why? Because there have always been people within the church who've been influenced by one of three things. Either by doctrinal heresy, spiritual apathy, or professional jealousy. And this was true at Corinth. There were those who were twisted in their doctrinal outlook and wouldn't credit Paul with the truth. Though others were utterly apathetic, so apathetic, so utterly indifferent and insensitive that there was a case of incest in the church and they completely overlooked it, never dealt with it. There was professional jealousy for some said, I'm of Paul. Others said, I'm of Apollos. Others said, I'm of Cephas. And they had their own men in the church. Professional, professional jealousy. And because of this affectation and influence, they had, if you will, the audacity, the presumption to challenge the transparency of the life of Paul. They questioned the transparency of his life. Look, secondly, they questioned the veracity of his letters. 
They questioned the veracity of his letters, verses 13 and 14, for we write none other things unto you than ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end, as also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. The New English Bible makes this particular passage extremely clear. Let me read it to you. There is nothing in our letters to you but what you can read for yourself and understand too. Partial as your present knowledge of us is, you will, I hope, come to understand fully that you have as much reason to be proud of us as we are of you on the day of Jesus Christ. They not only challenged the transparency of his life, but they challenged the veracity of his letters. Paul had written at least two letters by this time, and he had written them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in his first epistle, he says to them, I write to you not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But notwithstanding this, notwithstanding the stamp of authority upon his letters, and his claim that God had spoken to him, and out of the spoken word of God he had communicated to paper, through his secretary, through his amanuensis, a message from God to them. They questioned the veracity of his letters. Now, of course, once again, this is characteristic of critics, characteristic of critics who are under the spell of Satan. From the very beginning, the devil has questioned the truth of God. In the Garden of Eden, the devil could say to Eve, hath God said, hath God said, so no witness here in the church, whether it's in your office or bank or school or wherever it is, no preacher behind the desk can be surprised if there are those who emerge in every generation and say, hath God said, they question the veracity of his letters. But let us remember that when we challenge the truth of God spoken by a man of God, such as Paul, we are in fact aligning ourselves with the accuser of the brethren, even Satan himself. They questioned the transparency of his life. They questioned the veracity of his letters. But even more, look again. In the third place, they questioned the fidelity of his labors. Verses 15 through 17. And in this confidence I was minded to come to you, that ye might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When therefore I was thus minded, did I use fickleness? Did I use lightness? In his first epistle, Paul had informed the Corinthians that he purposed to visit them after that he had passed through Macedonia. But in these two verses which I've read to you, Paul reveals that he had a change of plans and that these change of plans was an action from heaven. God had prompted him to lead in another direction, to pursue another course. But this minority group in the church decided that this change of schedule was nothing more than an evidence of utter fickleness 
and unreliability. And they charged him with lack of faithfulness. They said, you're fickle and not faithful. They were so unspiritual that they couldn't even discern in this change of schedule and plan that the sovereign God could superimpose upon Paul another line of direction altogether. That God could easily say, Paul, I want you now to turn from that to which you've set your face and move in this direction. There is such a thing as my transcending the plans you've already made. There is such a thing as the creative plan of God. There's such a thing as the redemptive plan of God. When there's a failure in the one, he introduces the other. When Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden, God wasn't taken unaware. It wasn't God's purpose that Adam and Eve should fail in the Garden of Eden. He made them, and he made them to love him and to trust him and to obey him. But they did fail, and because they failed, he introduced something over the creative plan, a redemptive plan. Not that one's better than the other, but that God always has an answer, which we're never to question when there is a change of plan. No allowance was made for the sovereign overruling of the spirit. They did not recognize that so often human disappointment is divine appointment. Now once again there is a lesson for all of us here. No one has a right to challenge the guidance of God in a genuine Christian's life, especially with such a person is of the calling and caliber of the Apostle Paul. So we have seen that man's accusation is cruel and unremitting. The more we analyze the areas that were called into question, the clearer becomes the motives of these unspiritual people in the church at Corinth. When we speak of Paul's life and letters and labors, we're thinking of Paul in the whole range of his life and character. Nothing's left out. In every sense of the word, my friends, these people were bringing into discredit this man, his message, and his methods. Paul, from the sole of his feet to the top of his head, was being discredited. The transparency of his life was questioned. The veracity of his letters was questioned. The fidelity of his labors was questioned. Man, message, and methods were being discredited. This, of course, was not only serious in the early church, but continues to be one of the most serious activities of the, the enemies of God down through the centuries. David once posed the most solemn question in this regard, and I never read these words without getting a tremendous sense of shock. And one might almost say fear. Listen to the words. Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And there isn't anyone in this church this morning who hasn't heard of some servant of God being challenged and that servant of God having very evidently upon him the anointing of the Spirit, either in evangelistic endeavors or in a local ministry. No one in this church, if you're informed, has ever been in any kind of fellowship where that hasn't been true of an elder or a deacon or an outstanding member of the church and perhaps 
even at other levels of the rank and file of the church. It's the enemy's work to discredit the conscience, the conduct, and the character of God's people. There is nothing which robs the church of its passion, its mission, and action in the world today like false accusations and destructive criticisms that are unfounded. It's the work of Satan. It's the work of the destroyer. It's cruel and unremitting. Now, Paul shares this. Paul's absolutely open and frank. Paul calls, holds back nothing. He just opens it right up in this letter. And in the fellowship of vindication, he says, there it is. Now then, judge for yourselves. You challenge the transparency of my life, the veracity of my letters, the fidelity of my work and service. Now, what has God got to say about this? Well, against that somber background of man's accusation, let us address ourselves to the flashing truth of God's vindication. For in the very same verses that we've already considered, we come to this very important subject of the vindication of our God. As we heard in the choir this morning, if God be for us, who can be against us? And here is the rest of some poor accused Christian here this morning. Some person who perhaps is being taken apart, not only by the critics of the church, but perhaps the critics within your home, perhaps of your business place. And I trust that the second part of the message this morning is going to be a tremendous encouragement and undergirding to send you out into action. Because I am convinced, I am convinced the reason why the church hasn't a voice today in this desperate hour in which we live, with all the confusion around us, with all the perplexity, with all the sorrow, with all the darkness, the reason why is that Christians don't want to become involved. They're afraid of accusation. They're afraid of being torn apart. They're afraid of being caught in the cross currents and fires of modern criticism and accusation. And because of timidity, they hold back, they hold back, and they cease to become involved. But once a person understands what we're now going to look at, and rests in the vindicator and the vindication of our God, nothing will stop us from action at every level of service and challenge. So look with me now at the same verses we've already considered, but from another angle. The vindication of God. Verse 12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we had our conversation in the world and wore abundantly to you, Ward. And down to verse 18, but as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay, but by implication, yea, and we meant yes, no, and we meant no. Now, Peter in his epistle records that Jesus, the Son of God, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. What a glorious statement. Judgeth righteously. How wonderful to know that there is a God in heaven who vindicates his servants, both in time and in eternity. And in the passage before us, we see the outworking of this principle in the life of the Apostle Paul. We observe that the Apostle was vindicated in a threefold way. Number one, look at it carefully. First, a conscience that was clear before God. A conscience 
that was clear before God. Verse 12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. The testimony of our conscience. Now, these were no vain words on the part of the apostle. He made it his business to walk in the light as God is in the light and to enjoy an unbroken fellowship with heaven. Standing before Felix, Paul could say on one occasion, here and I do exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. And on another occasion, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. No man could make such a boast as this without a quiet sense of God's vindication. And so it is today, the believer in Christ has nothing to worry about so long as he enjoys unbroken fellowship with his God, his judge, his vindicator, his savior. Accusers may come and accusers may go, but our vindicator goes on forever. Beloved friend here this morning, oppressed, held back, cowering for fear, have no fear have no fear in any context within the church or outside of it. Have no fear as long as you can say, my conscience is clear before God. My conscience is clear before God. A clear conscience is God's vindication. Has everyone a clear conscience here this morning? I mean a clear conscience. I don't mean a dead conscience. I don't mean a seared conscience. Paul, writing to Timothy, talks about a conscience that's seed with a hot iron. Just as flesh becomes insensitive when it's being burnt, so a conscience can become so insensitive by trifling with sin and rationalization that it no longer operates. The conscience can become insensitive. But when a man has a sensitive conscience, and I mean a sensitive conscience, to sin, to the will of God, to the workings of the Spirit, and he can stand and say, my conscience bears witness that I have heaviness and continual sorrow up against a lost world and I am burdened to see that world saved. When a man says, I am standing in the presence of God and I call upon him to witness that I speak the truth in Christ, I lie not. When a man says, herein do I exercise myself to have a conscience, never having an offense before God or men, you're vindicated, my friend. You're vindicated. A conscience that was clear before God. Secondly, will you notice a conduct that was pure before God. A conduct that was pure before God. Carrying on, verse 12, in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you, Ward. Now, without fear of contradiction, Paul was able to say that whether judged by the church or by the world, his manner of behavior was characterized by three things. Notice them in the verse here. Follow with me. Simplicity, sincerity, and spirituality. Look at the word simplicity in that verse. The word simplicity really means holiness. It's an unusual word. It's an unusual word and is only used once again in the New Testament in Hebrews 10, 12, and 10. 12 and 10. Where Believers are described as being partakers of his, God's, holiness. That's the word, partakers of his holiness. And Paul says, God knows, God knows that I'm indwelt by this quality of holiness. It's been imputed to me and it's been imparted to me. 
And Paul says nothing less than a life like that, which demands a supernatural explanation in the church or out of the church, explains how I've lived before God. Only God's holiness imparted and imputed, I repeat, could guarantee a life of holy living, such as Paul claimed he knew before God and before men. But look at the other word, sincerity. The word sincerity, this is a significant word. Interpreted, it means all that corresponds to an unsullied and uncontaminated Christian character. This beautiful Greek term means freedom from all admixture. And scholars tell us that it's associated with the practice of testing something in the sunshine. The merchant, the merchant who would take a vase, a vase that he just bought, and bring it out of the shop and hold it up to the light in order to see whether there were fractures there, whether it was sound, whether or not those fractures had been filled up with wax so that in holding it to the sunlight the wax would begin to melt and reveal that it wasn't really sincere. There was an admixture there. And Paul says, Paul says, God is my witness that I know a holiness in my life which gives me a quality of living I couldn't live myself. I know a sincerity in my life. I can be tested in the sunshine of God's presence and I know that as God is my witness I share the very sincerity of God. The actual Greek term here is not sincerity which is godly, but the sincerity of God. Look again, beyond this, his conduct was marked by spirituality. In other words, his conduct was the very antithesis of what he calls here fleshly wisdom. Fleshly wisdom. On the contrary, his mode of life was the outworking of the grace of God, mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ and activated within his own personality and being, Grace was the very atmosphere he breathed. Grace was the very sphere in which he worked and talked and witnessed. Now all this was not meaningless boasting. Paul was speaking in the presence of God, his vindicator, and he declares that just as his conscience was clear, so his conduct was pure. And he challenged any man, any woman in the Corinthian church to lay their finger upon any point in his life which didn't add up to simplicity, sincerity, and spirituality. That's a tremendous claim. And yet Paul does it in such a way that he magnifies the grace of God. It isn't I, says Paul. I couldn't do it. If it were I, it would be fleshly wisdom. But it's the very life of God in Christ, in me, breaking through. And it's upon this life I count for this quality of conduct. But we come, of course, to the climax of it all when he speaks not only of a conscience that was clear before God, a conduct that was pure before God, but also a character that was true before God. Verses 19 through 22. Oh, what a passage. What a passage. I want you to think of this even more thoroughly than I can give it to you here this morning. Paul starts off by saying, but as God is faithful, God is true. It's not fickleness I'm talking about, but faithfulness. As God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. In this verse and those that follows, Paul affirms that as God is true, he was not a vacillator who said yes and no in the same breath. As a preacher of the gospel of the Son of God, look at the verses here. As a preacher of the gospel of the Son of God, he was but the instrument through whom the very life 
and character of the Savior were being manifested. Just as Christ was the fulfillment of all God's prophecies here upon earth, so he felt that he was the instrument for the fulfillment of the promises of Christ. And again, just as the character of God was reflected through the promises fulfilled in Christ, so the character of the Savior was reflected through the word of the gospel spoken by Paul. So Paul, so Paul says that God's yes to a world of need is Jesus Christ. God's yes to a world of need is Jesus Christ. And Christ's amen to that same world of need is a character of a Christian who's totally committed to God. God looked down upon this earth and he promised redemption because it was ruined by sin. And he promised a thousandfold throughout the Old Testament many promises of his coming redemption. And Christ was God's great yes to a world of need in the fulfillment of all those promises. And says Paul, just as Christ was the fulfillment of all the promises of God to a world of need, so I have become the amen, amen of Christ to a world of need by a character which stands for yes and means yes. And no, and means no. And to prove his point, Paul gives evidence of this in a threefold way. And he says this can be true of any Christian because he deliberately links us with himself, as you'll see in the text in a moment. That God wants your conscience clear. God wants your conduct pure. God wants your character true. And if that threefold qualification stands the sunshine of God's presence, then you're vindicated, my friend. You're vindicated. I care not who raises a finger against you. Now, what is this threefold stamp of a character that's pleasing to God? What is this threefold stamp that says, Amen to Jesus Christ? Amen to Jesus Christ. What is this threefold stamp that echoes the amen in your own heart this morning? Here it is. Look at it. First of all, the seal of the Spirit. The seal of the Spirit. Verses 21 and 22. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ. Paul isn't disassociating himself from other Christians. He's linking himself with the people at Calvary Baptist Church here this morning. You can know that same seal of the Spirit. He which establisheth us with you in Christ is God who hath also sealed us. Now the sealing of the Holy Spirit is a stamp of ownership. The stamp of divine character. Writing to the Ephesians, Paul says, in whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. In Paul's day, this word seal signified ownership, security, responsibility, the stamp, the stamp of authority. When anything was sealed, it was the claim of the owner. For instance, in the mercantile city of Ephesus, when merchants came in to buy lumber, they bought it in great consignments and then sealed it with their stamp. And then returned back to where they came from and would send their servants to tow those great lumber loads down the riverways or to carry it and pull it with oxen over land. But how did they know which lumber belonged to the master? How did they know? They looked for the seal 
They looked for the stamp of their master. They looked for that which represented the very character of their master, the stamp of their master. Paul's use of this term in this context is to emphasize the genuineness and reality of his belongingness to Jesus Christ. And we might add, this is likewise true of everyone who is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit? When does that happen, you ask? At conversion, my friend. At conversion. That moment when in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you open your whole being to your Savior and God. In that moment, God stamps you with the seal of the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. There is a stamp upon your life which is his very character. His very character. His very character. And Paul says, I've been sealed. That's the first evidence that my character is true before God. I know the seal of the Spirit. I know the seal of the Spirit. But there's not only the seal of the Spirit. Will you notice there is the earnest of the Spirit mentioned here? The earnest of the Spirit. Same two verses. Now he which establisheth us is God who hath given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now the word earnest was used to describe the first payment on a transaction yet to be accomplished. Even more colorfully, it was a word used of an engagement ring. It was used of an engagement ring as a pledge of impending marriage. And the true meaning of engagement, young people, the true meaning of engagement, when that fellow puts the ring on that girl and that finger fits that ring, it's the pledge of impending marriage. There is never any question about it in God's book. Broken engagements are unknown in God's book. It's an earnest of what's inevitably to follow. And says Paul, God has put the engagement ring on us. Not only the seal, but the earnest of the spirit. And that earnest of the spirit is the guarantee that I not only have the character of Christ in me now, but the fulfillment of all God's purpose in making me like his son is going to take place. The Spirit himself witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Just as all the promises of God were fulfilled in Christ, so likewise all the promises will be fulfilled in every believer who knows not only the seed, but the earnest of the Spirit. And Paul, with absolute confidence, says, I know the moment in my life when God stamped me with his character, the seal of the Spirit, and I know I have the seal of the Spirit. And what is more, I know I have the earnest of the Spirit. I wear the engagement ring to know that having been engaged to my Lord, there's going to be the full marriage of that total oneness with him and conformity to him in a coming day. And that the promises of God made real to me in salvation are going to be made real to me in sanctification and are going to be made real to me in glorification. This is my character. I'm sealed. And I have the earnest of the Spirit. Can you say that here this morning? Have you that assurance here this morning? If you haven't, I wonder if you would be man enough and woman enough not to slip out afterwards, but to come forward right here and seek spiritual help. That you may go away this morning saying, thank God I know the seal of God's spirit. I know the earnest of God's spirit. I'm as sure of heaven as if I were already there. I've got the first payment on an installment which is going to be completed. A transaction which is going to be accomplished. But perhaps the most important 
have all these three evidences as the one with which we conclude this morning. There is the earnest of the Spirit, to be sure. There is the seal of the Spirit, to be sure. But look again, there is the anointing of the Spirit. The anointing of the Spirit. Now he which establisheth us and hath anointed us is God. He which has established us with God's great amen through the seal and earnest of the Spirit and has anointed us is God. Just as the oil was poured out upon Old Testament saints to consecrate them to the ministries of the prophet and priest and king respectively, so the oil of the Spirit has been poured out upon all who are prepared to appropriate that anointing that they might be prophets and priests and kings unto God. There is a ministry that we can call in non-technical language as the ministry of the prophet in witness and edification and comfort. There is the ministry of the priest in worship and prayers and praise. There is the ministry of the king. Yes, the believer king, for we are a kingdom of priests reigning in life by one Christ Jesus, triumphing over the world, the flesh and the devil, bruising Satan under our feet, moving out in triumph. There is a ministry of the prophet, there is a ministry of the priest, there is a ministry of the king for every individual believer. And it comes through the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And Paul knew something of this. Once again, Paul was using this as an evidence of the vindication of his ministry. Paul knew deep down in his soul that he hadn't only been sealed with the Spirit, he had not only been given the earnest of the Spirit, but that the Spirit of God had come upon him in an anointing. Not only was he indwelt by the Spirit, not only was he filled with the Spirit, but he knew the endowment with power, the anointing of the Spirit, the oil of God, as it were, had been poured upon him, and there was an authority in his life, an authority in his life that no one could question. Why? Because God's Spirit had made him real in this experience. And he was a prophet, and he was a priest, and he was a king. This was character. This is character. This is the very life of Jesus Christ in us breaking through us. And I want to say no one can know this seal, this earnest, this anointing of the Spirit without being a channel of the authentic gospel. For you see, what we are colors what we say. Let me repeat that. What we are colors what we say. If our characters are not true before God, our message will not ring true. But on the other hand, if we genuinely know the seal, the earnest, and the anointing of the Spirit, then let me tell you, our yeas are yeas, and our nays are nays. We never say no and yes in the same breath. Our yeas are always yeas, and our nays are always nays, says Paul. And our character is unchallengeable. We're not fickle, but faithful. This then is God's ultimate vindication of his servants. Not only a conscience that is clear and a conduct that is pure, but a character that is true because of the seal and the earnest and the anointing of the Spirit. Let us take courage then, my friends, this morning as we go into action. I know it in my own heart, so I'm speaking your heart. You can't dodge a single word I say this morning if you're here because God wishes to speak to you. I know it in my own heart that what holds me back from witnessing to a world outside, what holds me back from standing up in a difficult situation and speaking the word of truth and saying yes and meaning yes and saying no and meaning no instead of riding the fence 
that which makes me stand absolutely four square on the authority of the word of God is nothing less than the seal and the earnest and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But I know that what I fear is the accusation of man. What is he going to say about me? How is he going to evaluate my preaching, my witness, my reputation, my character? And I want to tell you straight away, no man will rise to any level of usefulness for God without being challenged at every level of your life, the transparency of your life. Yes, the veracity of what you say. Yes, and the fidelity of what you do. Yes, it'll all be challenged. But are you going to bow under that accusation? Or are you going to accept God as your vindicator and say, Oh God, as long as my conscience is clear, my conduct is pure. And my character is true because I know the seal. I know the earnest and I know the anointing of the spirit. And I know that in my life. And the anointing of God is upon me. You'll never fear. You'll never fear. As long as the church lasts, there will always be the accusation of man. But blessed be his name. There will always be the vindication of God. And I close by saying, and if God before us, who can be against us? This is God's call to action. Let's be done with cowering cowardice. Let's be done with timidity and infidelity and unreliability. Let them hurl their missiles at us. Let them accuse and criticize. God is our vindicator with clear conscience, with pure conduct, with true character. Let's go and say our yes to a world of desperate need. Let's go and say our no to a world of desperate need. But let our yes be yes. And our no, no. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, who is the yes to God's will, we have the amen of authority in our life and in our witness. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee that thou hast not left us to grope in darkness, to wander about in confusion, but that thou hast given us an authoritative word from heaven. And that word, incarnate in Jesus Christ, has become indwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for that seal, that earnest and anointing, which is thy stamp of authority upon us as individuals and as a church. Deliver us from fear of accusation. Give us faith in thy vindication. And grant us grace to go into action in a world that needs, a world that needs the redemptive message of Jesus Christ. We ask this for thy dear name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.